0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Drug overdose has taken the lives of 300,000 Americans over the last 15 years, and experts now predict that 300,000 more people could die in the next five years. And in fact, we're seeing 72,000 deaths in a year. It is now the leading cause of death for dope-sick Americans under 50, killing more people than guns or car accidents at a rate higher than the HIV epidemic at its height. This shocking data reflects a failure on the part of the FDA, our justice system, Government, doctors, media, and especially Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, who built a marketing machine and distribution of Oxycontin that was based on deception and a desire for profits that eclipsed any regard for the devastating damage and deaths to communities and families. How did this happen? Who is responsible? What are the solutions? And what does this look like at the personal level is brilliantly explored by Beth Macy in her award-winning, best-selling book, *Dopesick*: Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America. I have been a huge fan of Beth's ever since I read Factory Man in 2014, and therefore it is a pleasure, Beth, to welcome you to Just the Right Book for yet another important book. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
0: Um so you know 300,000 people have died which is a lot. That doesn't count the families that are impacted, the financial ruin, the communities. And I I think I have this right that there are 23 million people in recovery. So before we explore how we got here and who some of the villains are and some of the heroes, spend a minute to help our audience understand the scope of the problem.
1: Yeah. And I'm glad you brought those numbers up. Those numbers were accurate when I finished Dope Sick. But um, thanks a lot to the pandemic, they have just continued to increase exponentially Mm. you know about two months ago we surpassed a hundred thousand deaths uh just for one year year.
2: and for one
1: year so that 72 has gone up and i'm I'm looking at my cheat sheet here because i just recently tallied every single year of drug overdose deaths since the year oxycontin came in and in 1996, and when you add them all up, it's actually a million point oh four deaths. And you're exactly right; that's not counting the families and loved ones. It's not counting addiction-related uh, deaths, including suicide, uh, hepatitis C, HIV. Um, so it's it's and it's definitely an undercount, uh, regardless. So we are really uh, this is the number one destroyers. Destroyer of families, in my opinion, addiction.
0: And I want to start with the FDA because of all the of all the participants in this, the FDA is the one that sort of stumps me. Right, their job is to protect the public, and when OxyContin. Uh, came out in 1996. What did they do in their approval that allowed this to go exponentially out there and become as addictive a drug as it is?
1: Well, they allowed Purdue to get away with saying in their um, in their literature that came with the drug that it was because it had a time-release system, the cotton system, it was supposed to bleed out over 12 hours, that it was therefore safer than competing immediate-release opioids like Percocet, Vicodin, Lortab. And there's all kinds of shenanigans that went on behind the scenes to get this drug approved with basically no real studies done to 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 prove its safety and efficacy. Uh, I, we go into some detail in the new series in Hulu because a lot of information has come out about the role of the FDA since I published dope Sick. We had a document leaked to us uh, while I was in the writing room for the show last summer, uh, showing that the medical review officer at the FDA actually uh, encouraged Purdue to rent Uh, a suite of hotel rooms so they could work on the language of the approval together. I mean, that's unheard of. Is this
0: Curtis Wright?
1: This is none other than Dr. Curtis Wright, who 18 months later, after stamping approved on OxyContin, goes to work for Purdue Pharma, tripling his government salary, making um, almost $400,000.
0: So, so, so Beth, let me ask, let, let's just focus on that for one second because, you know, there, I, I don't even know how to ask this question because it's so shocking to me, and, and which maybe makes me sound beyond naive. But what was the motivation for FDA to cut Purdue, that kind of slack. The one percent, as you describe in the book, was based on like a sentence in an article from 1980 somewhere. There wasn't a study. There wasn't a anything. It was a letter
1: to the editor. It was literally a letter
0: to the editor. Yeah. So, yeah. what was the motivate? What what was going on in the brain of Curtis Wright or the FDA? Did Purdue? you know get curtis to uh did did he basically bribe him with a job i mean what happened there we Do you don't think- know
1: that it's straight out quid pro quo we we know that this this hotel suite was rented and that it was highly unusual that uh the Purdue executives would be allowed to actually author some of that language. We know that Curtis, um, it later, four years later, five years later in 2001, he helped um, you know, make it so that when the black box warning did come as a serious rebuke, uh, they also got what they wanted. They got rebuked, and yet they got to say the drug was safe for extended pain. Um, so at every turn, when the FDA could have made a real decision on behalf of consumers and could have been the watchdog that they're supposed to be, they sided with industry. Now, when you tease back the layers on how that is allowed to happen, it goes back to deregulation and and ragged. Um, you know, and and ironically, it goes back to a lot of the. Uh, Deregulation of drugs that began when the government wasn't responding to HIV AIDS drugs, a lot of the regulations got um, you know sort of cast aside so we could get those life saving HIV drugs on the market, and in that window industry ends up becoming uh, the number one funder of the FDA. 65% of the FDA's regulatory budget is now paid for by industry.
0: Let let me me walk that back a little bit, Beth, because it's a a lot of information. So the regulatory environment was loosened in order to accommodate drugs that could be helpful quicker to the public to get approved.
1: For HIV and
0: AIDS, AIDS. so that was in place.
1: Yes, and then but deregulation was already happening. You remember uh, Ronald Reagan, the government is bad, all this kind of ethos, and those two things combined. uh, By the time uh, the FDA is looking at OxyContin in 1995, it comes on the market December of that year. um, You had this situation that you know, a lot of revolving door practices were happening, and and continue to happen. I mean, there was a law passed under Obama in 2017, that was basically um, kneecap the DEA from going after suspicious distribution orders. And it was written by somebody who had been a lawyer for industry. Um, So, that's that's like a low hanging fruit. Like we've got to stop the revolving door. Right. It shouldn't be the rich person gets to decide what's going to happen. The person who benefits both. It should be it should be the public.
0: And, and Beth, when did 65 percent of the budget for the FDA start coming from industry? I always thought it was a 100 percent government agency
1: no this started um in the 80s and the last figure i looked it up just for the new book recently was 65 um I, I can't tell you exactly what year that flipped but there's something called purdufa which is a law that got passed um that basically uh allows the ufa in that as user fees um basically set it up for um industry to have too much influence i mean there are things like fda meetings in fancy hotels that you know industry in secret either way in, in secret yeah, right in secret yeah the milwaukee uh newspaper uncovered that in 2013 i mean there's been some really good journalism around this but it's a slow simmering thing like like a frog boiling in water, you know? It just gets a little bit worse and a little bit worse until you look back and you're like, holy crap, we just lost 100,000 people.
0: To yeah, over to and, and so Beth, one of the things that I hope we build to in this conversation is to help people listening, to be informed in a way that they can act on where they understand it. Because before we leave beating up on the FDA, Um, You know, in the book, you mentioned that as late as 2013, the FDA approved another high-potency, long-acting version of hydrocodone, even after its own panel voted 11 to 2 against it. Mm -hmm.
1: That happened a number of times in the 20-teens. Opana... uh, there was a, a woman. She's actually the acting director of the FDA right now, named Janet Woodcock. I had an op-ed about how the how President Biden shouldn't give her the the job because she was supposed to be the top cop, but she, whenever there was a chance to go uh, with the people or industry, she always chose uh, industry.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor.
2: I want a vacation that can make the fun happen. For me, the best parts of a vacation are the ones that surprise you. I call those fun expected moments, and I get those from fun jet vacations. FunJet Vacations offers vacation packages to your favorite destinations, such as Mexico, the Caribbean, Florida, Hawaii, and more. For over 45 years, they've delivered friendly, reliable service so you can focus on the fun. Right now, you can use promo code FJ50 to save $50 on your next FunJet vacation. Get more moments that are fun expected. Surprise yourself at Dreams Resorts and Spas by AMR Collection at FunJet.com or call your local travel advisor. Restrictions apply.
0: So I'm going to give you a magic wand a few times during this conversation. So I'm going to give you the first magic wand. If you could change something about the FDA, what would it be?
1: It would stop. It would be to stop the revolving door. So this just
0: this. To have more limits.
1: Yeah, have more limits. If you're going to take an important job at the FDA, you should not have worked for industry for X number of years, you know, so you're therefore not incentivized to give them some sweetheart deal because you know that when you retire, you're going to go work for them.
0: Okay, so this was the first thing I was shocked about. The FDA. Now let's go to the. I wasn't as shocked because there was more press on this, but let's go to Purdue Pharma. So uh, before we even go into what Purdue Pharma did in the case of Oxycontin, I was very um, amused, I would say, by Arthur Sackler, who was one of the founders of Purdue Pharma actually developed his reputation by figuring out that he could use perks for doctors and misleading scientific information to um uh sell um uh via, not not <laughs> valium. valium that he could use that all that material to get Valium to be, have exponential growth. So it was in the DNA of the Sacklers to be doing this. So the data is that in, they launched it in OxyContin in 1996, and they went from 48 million to over a billion in sales in four years. So share with us the sales machine that they put in place to make that happen. What were the ingredients of their sales machine?
1: So they knew that they know you can't go on TV and market opioids directly to the consumer. And they learned from Arthur. So Arthur was dead by the time he died in 87, by the time Oxycontin came out. But they knew uh, all of his marketing strategies, and it was basically Arthur Sackler one-on-one. We're gonna give these doctors uh, swanky retreats. They sent 5,000 doctors, nurses, and pharmacists to to these uh, resorts in Arizona and Florida, et cetera, to learn more about the the drug, to become paid speakers for the company. They they hired an army of reps, uh, more reps, Uh, per capita than any other pharmaceutical company had had. And they incentivized them in that if they could get a doctor, not only to prescribe more Oxycontin, but to just prescribe higher doses, more milligrams, their bonus was higher. Mm. It wasn't the pills, it was the milligrams. That was very unusual. So, you know, Richard Sackler knew that that was the way to make money because they made more money on the higher milligram pills. Um, They, I mean, if you, if you read the statement of facts, they made up false charts that they would take into, that some reps took into doctor's office. Uh, exaggerating the benefits in minimizing the risks. So, like the chart would look like uh, a, a, a small hill, uh, and that was meant to convey that there were fewer peaks and valleys in in the experience of the drug over 12 hours. But that chart was like flexed with. It wasn't. That wasn't a real chart. Um, you know. So they they cooked the books on it at, at every chance they could.
0: And and so they've got this sales machine in place. They knew to go to the communities that already, the doctors that were already prescribing a lot of Percocet. They were, as you said, incentivizing the sales reps. They were providing perks for the doctors. They were ignoring what they knew. They were ignoring that the coding on the drug, which was presumably the protection against uh, or or mitigating against addiction because it would, that would modulate the um, way the drug was intaked. But they knew quickly uh, that people figured out how to scrape it off and therefore get the immediate rush, which would increase the opportunity for addiction
1: absolutely yeah and i go into great detail in the book about it um you know i found the first cop that saw it being sold on the black market in this little town in the coal fields of virginia and he's like you would see people walking around with green and orange sh- smears on their shirts where they had put the pill in their mouth let the coating the time release uh mechanism the safety if you will melt off and then they would crush it uh to, to snort or inject. And yeah, you know, he remembered uh, this uh, confidential informant leaning into his police cruiser, telling him, you know, as early as like 1997, this feller's got this new drug he's selling up the street. It's called Oxycompton And he says, it's great, mm. you know, and like you go to these little towns and every doctor, every nurse, every family, every cop has a story about the moment when they went, holy crap, this is gonna destroy our town. And
0: and so one of the um, enormous aids to Purdue in selling this drug and the information was simultaneously with the release of this drug Pain became the fifth vital sign, and um, there were charts that were put together that were like you know your your um, your your pain score, with a little smiley face. With the little smiley face, and we got to the place where uh, the the gold standard of medical care was zero pain tolerance, right? So this was a companion. And in fact, um, David Haddix, that was the, was he the medical director or what was his job at Purdue? Yeah,
1: he was the medical director. And he, but prior to working for Purdue, he had come up with the phrase pseudo addiction. And So they hired him because they really liked his take on addiction, which is that there's no such thing as addiction. If you're still in pain and you're taking our medicine, uh, the cure to pseudo addiction, when you show up and you're exhibiting signs of uh, addiction, it's it's to take more opioids.
0: And, and in fact, so he would go out and claim it was safe and reliable with addiction rates of less than 1% and that, that it would be good for... Um, Wisdom tooth surgery and moderate back injuries, bronchitis. And so the FDA knows that, but did the doctors not really? So, the, you know, their partners were the doctors in, yes, in doing but it this.
1: it was like, it was kind of like everybody was saying it. You know, everywhere you looked, there was this message that pain is a vital sign. And when you dig just a little bit below the surface, it's big pharma that's like paying for these campaigns and supporting these pain foundation and pain orgs. And they're co-opting people like um, Russell Portnoy from, um, you know, famous pain management doctor in New York at Beth Israel, uh, he becomes a big spokesman. Now he he eventually recants his stance on it and says, we were wrong, we went too far. The whole thing that Purdue did, I mean, they weren't the only ones doing it for sure. I mean, that's their big talking point, you know. But they started it and they, they're the ones most responsible for flipping the narrative, whereas for uh, a century, because we had an opioid crisis after the Civil War with morphine, we knew opioids should only be used for cancer, end of life, post-surgery, but just for a day or two, not for chronic, moderate, extended use um, for pain. And what they did was they flipped it, um, and some people were being undertreated, uh, but they took that uh, minority of people that, that should have been getting treatment, And they said, now, oh, it's safe for headaches, lower back pain. I mean, what person doesn't have lower back pain from time to time? TMJ, uh, wisdom tooth surgeries. And not only did the initial folks, many of them were were addicted through no fault of their own, but their kids and the neighbor's kids and their grandkids, because they were giving out so many opioids way more than a person needed, typically, there would be all these medicines sitting in their medicine cabinet. And so rather than just experimenting with beer and marijuana, like my friends and I did uh, as teenagers, now kids are experimenting with these pills. And that's really a lot of folks come to heroin Starting out with pills, but a lot of them uh start out with pills that aren't even prescribed to them. Just it's just that they've been so massively overprescribed in um the 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 communal medicine cabinet of Americans that they're there for the taking.
0: So you know, one of the things I'm I'm curious about is, and you talk about this some in the book that there's been a surprising lack of outrage about what's going on. I mean, I think your book um, and the Hulu series hopefully will begin to change that. But I, I was trying to think about the role of the media and I I was thinking, is it that we fault the addict? you know, it's like the gun lobbies, theory that it's not guns that um, kill, it's people who kill. It's not the drug that's the problem. It's it's the abuser. Do you think the lack of outrage we've had as a society is related to the stigma of how we think about addicts or how we think about rural America, which is where we thought it was going to stay and, oh, well, it was in rural America. I mean what why hasn't there been the outrage
1: well, well one of the things that it was like this slow simmering story it starts in 1996 it starts at the same time that in these rural distressed communities the jobs are going away right. and so that people quickly realize they can if they can get a doctor to write them oxy they can sell half and take the other half it goes for like an eighty milligram pill goes for a dollar milligram on the black market, so they could get their neighbor to to go say, "Hey, I've been standing on the factory floor, my back hurts," and then split the proceeds. So it became this like side hustle, like moonshine had been in the old days, and the national press largely misses this story. Now I worked. For many years for the Roanoke Times in Western Virginia, just on the outskirts of Appalachia, we knew the OxyContin story as a crime story because I had a colleague who actually reported on the case that we tell the story of in the um in my book and as well as in the Hulu show, um, that first big case where Purdue admits criminally misbranding the drug. That happens right here in this community. But um very rarely did the stories really make the news. And so not only did you have the the factory jobs and the coal mines closing, you also had a decline of legacy media, and which is something that just has continued to get Mm -hmm. worse. You've got these little towns that many little towns don't have newspapers at all. And at the same time, to your point about stigma, which is dead on, we have all grown up with this drug war mentality that we have to uh, incarcerate folks who break the laws related to drugs rather than offer them treatment, even though out of the other side of our mouth, we say addiction is a chronic relapsing disease. Our main tool remains incarceration and policing. And we've got to begin to unwind the drug war in order to get uh, treatment, treatment, low barrier treatment accessibility to the scale to match the crisis or we're just going to keep having declining life expectancies and and that's adding up to our urban rural divide our nasty toxic politics it's it's all interwoven it's a it's a big complicated story that's hard to tease out but one of the things i like so much about the dope sick show is it takes this 25 year history and it makes it not just entertaining, but like you get it. It brings it all into focus.
0: And, and so let's go to the. Uh, I, I want to come to the treatment and the solutions, but one of the things. It, so you were you were one of the writers on the Hulu series. Yes. Right. Which I did think I thought it was brilliant. I thought I thought it was a series that I. I that everybody ought to watch. I don't stop talking about it and then encourage them to read the book um, to learn more and I'll keep saying that. But one of the things that was in the series that was not such a big part of the book that I was curious whether it was for dramatic effect or it was something that was discerned afterwards and that is Richard Sackler, you know, in the series is, is played brilliantly to be like the evil corporate um, executive. And did he in but in the series, it wasn't really clear that he was acting with knowledge that it was creating addiction. It was just about the money. But Purdue knew pretty early about there being a problem. Art Van Zandt, who's one of your heroes in the book, wrote to them in 2000. So did, did someone like Richard Sackler, or Richard Sackler in particular, actually know the damage that it was doing and nonetheless created this behemoth that created billions and billions of dollars in profits?
1: Well, there's this great book that came out last year called Empire of Pain by right. Patrick Radden Keith, the New Yorker writer. And I mean, he implicates Richard in a huge way. Uh, he as a micromanager of the company. Um, so a lot of our independent research that we did in the room came from talking to former employees who who also confirmed that um, Richard was very involved. Um, we know from the 07 case, because they pleaded guilty to misbranding, that the top executives at the company knew as early as 98 that the drug was being abused. They sent uh, Howard Udell, their lead legal counsel, sent his legal secretary Maureen Sarah into chat rooms to see exactly how it was being abused and you know later she becomes addicted to oxycontin that actually happened and mm. she gets fired for it i mean that tells you uh, a lot right there right. um but everything that we portray um you know comes from the documents comes from emails mm-hmm. oh we sold the show uh to hulu in 19 and uh you know after that Like a lot of information came out in the Massachusetts lawsuit, uh, which was filed by the A.G. Maura Healy there, um, who was the first to name the Sacklers. And then, you know, some other books came out and it was just became a trope. People were leaking us documents. We were doing phone call interviews with former employees. Danny Strong, the showrunner, and I were um, to the point of then when Patrick's book comes out, you know, we were able to put in a scene that the lawyers didn't want us to put in because we only had one source on and then now we had another source. And, you know, literally he was rewriting it the night before they shot the scene. So, I mean, then the story continues to evolve. Yeah,
0: There's so no the current case, so um, right, right now, what's the status of the case? Because one of the judges said that um, the bankruptcy court does not have the right to limit the liability of the sacklers or purdue do i have that right
1: you do you have it exactly right and by this friday um the the, so it gets remanded back they said they're going to appeal she that judge said last week that she's going to allow them to appeal but meanwhile judge drain the bankruptcy judge was very firmly told all the lawyers last week you know uh so many lawyers billing so many dollars on this case that he expected them to go back to mediation and so there's still a handful of states that aren't consenting and the fear from the activists that I've been following for my new book uh, which follows the bankruptcy is that you know they'll kick in a little bit more money and then they'll settle and um, but there's also this other thing happening in the background which is that the attorney general of the united states could file criminal charges mm. and you know patrick says in his book it was as if purdue pharma was a driverless car like there right. are people responsible <laughs> right. the company pleads twice in federal court 07 and 2020 to a felonies and nobody's gone to jail um You know, it's just like the price of doing business. Yeah, And so Garland could hold them to account. All the evidence has been collected in the course of these two cases. It's just a trove of evidence.
0: So Beth, because there's so much, you know, we're, I'm worried about that we're not um, getting to some of the human interest stories, but I do think it's important for everyone to understand um, what's going on with the treatment. What is dope sick? What does the uh, route from opioid to heroin to fentanyl look like? How does that progression work? I think the Ashlyn Kessler story um, that you talk about might be a good place if... If you could give us a, a a a understanding of that, and then what I'd like to do is get to talk about what we do know works, but which is called uh MAT, but why that isn't being accepted across the board, because it does look like a solution. I mean, first you have to stop the problem, but now that, you know, like we said, there's twenty three million people, um, so what does what does the right treatment look like? So let's go back to what's dope sick and how do you go from opioid to heroin to fentanyl?
1: Yeah, so we talked about how the kids were experimenting with the pills that they took from grandma's medicine cabinet or or buying them from dealers who were uh, selling them on the streets. Around 2012, 2013, the DEA starts cracking down and the dealers can't get the pills anymore. And so um you and I may not have known that oxycontin and heroin were chemical cousins but the drug cartels did. Yeah. So they start bringing in heroin. It's much easier to get. It's, it's cheaper. much cheaper. It's much cheaper. And so like Tess Henry, the young woman I profile in the the second half of Dopesick the book um, you know, her dealer teaches her how to snort heroin. It was exactly felt and looked the same as when she was snorting a pill. And then after a while, that's not enough to keep her from being dope sick. And dope sick is the word users use uh, to describe the intense withdrawal, which is diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, restless like crushing anxiety, and depression. And as one person says early on in the book, um, at the end of your journey, you're not doing it to get high, you're doing it not to be dope sick. And so that was a really important concept because to me, it goes back to that stigma. If, if we, if we really understand, if we take the time to understand why they're doing it, they're not just moral failures. They're not bad people. Um, They're people with a medical condition. Their brains have been rewired. And, you know, that happened with Ashlyn Kessler, the young mom. She was a a legal aid who had uh, been overprescribed after a C-section and, you know, ends up getting busted on the interstate by uh, because she's running drugs uh, from New Jersey down to Virginia. You know, she ends up being one of the biggest dealers at the time. So she has to go serve several years in federal prison. Um, the, the answer, as I have come, I've just spent the last two years working on my new book, which comes out in August, it's called Raising Lazarus. It's about solutions. And the answer you mentioned MAT, that stands for medical, um, medication assisted treatment. Um, it's also just medicine. It's like insulin is for diabetics. So what, what it does, it's a weaker opioid brand names are Suboxone or methadone The people take. Um, And they cut the cravings. And so when the cravings get cut, and so you're not just chasing not being dope sick all the time, um, people can start to get their lives back together. And, but it's controversial. I mean, it's getting less controversial, thankfully. Um, But it's largely controversial because it is still an opioid, and some people, particularly abstinence-only people in recovery, will say, well, you're not really clean, a word I don't like to use, because you're taking Suboxone. And I saw this happen over and over as I was reporting the book. People, nobody would sponsor them at NA meetings because they were taking uh, Suboxone. Um, They were made to feel dirty. And um, this is... You know, there's more education about it now. It was really important to me with the show that we showed this. Mm. You know, it's a little wonky and in the weeds, but I but I said we have to figure out a way that we get the message of how life-saving these medicines are. I mean, you're 60 to 80 percent less likely to overdose and die if you're on these medications. Is it is it a quick fix for everyone? No, it's not. And some people it takes some three, four, five different tries. But I mean, part of the problem is we've set it up in this country that these medications are really hard to get. There's long waiting lists. There's some bad actors out there who do cash only. I mean, there's a number of issues that I think need to be addressed at a federal level to make it so everyone has access to the medicine as much as they have access, more access than they do to the drugs.
0: And Beth, you have, um, I, I might be overstating this, but if I read between the lines, you have real misgivings about the rehab systems that are in place that don't try to either accept or incorporate the other these these drugs that, like methadone and suboxone that you talk about so they're like rehabbing them sending them back out there and they're really not they're really not um rehabbed that their likelihood of relapsing is something like 65%
1: Oh it's higher than that. It's like 90%.
0: Oh, 90. Um, right. I
1: mean different facilities will spout different numbers but the data is really clear that um you're much more likely to die if if, if you're not on it, and two-thirds of rehab facilities don't allow it and part of it's stopping issue you you know the doc having the doctor there and, and all that. but part of it too is this like anti-medicine bias that we need to address.
0: Yeah. so Beth, um it, to l- let me ask you one question. There was like one line in the book that uh, caught my eye and it made me wonder, how it impacted your interest in the story or affects how you report on it. And that is that you mentioned that you grew up in an alcoholic household. What Mm -hmm. level of understanding did that give you in doing your research on this story? Did it, how, how did that impact you?
1: Well, it's something I have, that, that hurt me a lot, you know, like we didn't have a lot of, um, there was no safety net other than my grandmother lived next door and I had a fabulous mom who worked her tail off, but my ba- dad was basically, uh, a non-functioning person. And, um, I'm sure that's had some impact when I count back all the generations in my family and just the ones that I know of addiction goes back, mostly alcoholism four generations we now have a third of american families have say the opioid crisis has touched them personally Mm. i mean i'm not alone
0: say that statistic again
1: a third according to a recent gallup poll of american families say the opioid crisis is a problem in their family
0: whoa that's stunning
1: yeah and the majority of Americans will say, according to another poll, that uh, they believe addiction is a disease and yet asked if they would want to work with somebody who is in recovery or had o- opioid use disorder or have them marry into the family or be live next door, you know, the answer is no. So we just have so much work to do to uh, get rid of the stigma and because that affects if you really think it's just a problem with these moral failings uh it's these people are bad people and they should be incarcerated you see it all through the drug war lens so that's not going to that's like not going to move a needle. yeah yeah and so we need we need people to watch the show and read the books and read the many books by the way there's six or seven or eight books now out about the opioid crisis And I mean, really, the great thing about the Hulu series is, is, I mean, it can be really dark at times. But as I say, eight hours, you've got it, you've got all the high points, you've got the the solution to it. Um, and as I've learned, um, in, in my recent reporting about solutions, the real thing is going to people where they are. And that that's this concept called harm reduction. You've probably heard of needle exchanges. New York City just started
0: a yeah, uh, safe that.
1: consumption site pilot even. So that's this idea of we're going to still treat you good, um, like a human being. Um, because if we do that, we know you'll keep coming back and we're gonna give you clean needles. We're gonna give you fentanyl test strips. We haven't talked about fentanyl yet. But that's largely what's driving these overdose increases. It's just so much stronger than heroin and easier to smuggle in. Um, but we're gonna meet you where you are, even if you're still using drugs, because we know that any positive change uh, as you define your recovery is gonna ultimately lead to better a health outcome for you and you know, if you're doing better for the rest of your family. So we know that people who go to needle exchanges, for instance, are five times more likely to enter treatment. And we know they use drugs less, they, and and they use clean needles, so they're not spreading HIV, hepatitis C. Um, but it's just slightly counterintuitive enough that, um, you know, some people have real trouble with it. But I tell you, those people that have trouble with it need to just go visit um, some of these harm reduction centers that are that there aren't enough of them, but they are like with, with uh, string and duct tape, they are holding a lot of the homeless population together. A lot of these folks have been abandoned by their families. Um, they're on the streets. And um, those are the people we need to get to.
0: Mm. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor.
2: If you're like me, you love the idea of redirecting your space. You might browse Pinterest, you might watch some home decorating shows, and just everywhere you go you're daydreaming about your new decor. But wouldn't it be great if you could see your interior design ideas come to life? Give ReDecor a try. ReDecor is an interior decorating mobile game that's so much fun to play. ReDecor is a great creative outlet that lets your imagination run wild. Experiment with different colors, materials, and textures as you design room after room. I think my favorite part about the game is just expressing my own creativity as I participate in each challenge. Usually I play maybe first thing in the morning, maybe late at night, uh, occasionally in between meetings, just when the time is right. I'd say what makes Redecor really different is that while it's fun to play it actually is beneficial into everything i want to do to my own home and that's what makes Redecor a home design app and a mobile game in one it's a place to play explore designs find inspiration and connect with others who share your passion for home decor the graphics are so realistic and detailed and you're able to customize every piece of the room they've even got style guides with tips tricks and advice for decorating so test your creativity Enter your designs and challenges and let other players be the judge. Read the design brief and impress other fellow reed decorators by choosing the best combinations of color, textures, and materials out of a variety of options. Submit your best design and reap the rewards if you come out on top. So practice your interior design skills and express your creativity with reed Decor. Download reed Decor for free on the App Store or Google Play Store. That's R-E-D-E. C-O-R, on the App Store or Google Play Store. See you there.
0: So, Beth, in in closing, uh, you know, you dedicate uh, the book to uh, the memory of many people that you came across in the process of your reporting who died from drug addiction and each of their stories i thought illustrated a way to realize how who and how this could impact you know you could think it wouldn't happen to you you could think it wouldn't happen to your neighbor you would think the parents like didn't did everything wrong you would think the person and and your stories help us understand that it's way more complicated uh, than that. But one of the uh, young women that you talk about is Tess. So in closing, if you could tell us a little bit about Tess and why you became so fascinated by her story and how it is so representative of the complexity of what we're dealing with
1: yeah so she's a young woman from a very well-to-do family her dad is a surgeon her mom is a hospital nurse grew up with a vacation home on an island um so everything you would think all the resources that you would think that could be able to address this right but she has um I'm not a psychiatrist, but, you know, she told me she had anxiety and depression and she starts self-medicating. And at the time, her family really believed that, you know, if she hits bottom, then um, she'll suddenly, you know, a a, a switch will flip, right? And and they had been influenced by AA and abstinence-only modalities because they had another family member who AA had helped with alcoholism. And so Tess ends up getting pregnant. Um, she She's in and out of her family's life. She's living homeless. Finally, she's in and out of rehab. Her grandfather, octogenarian grandfather, pays to send her all the way to Las Vegas as sort of like, this is our one last chance. And, and when she bombs out of that abstinence-only rehab, which most people do, then she's homeless and she's on the streets of Las Vegas where she's intersecting with drug gangs, pimps, she's doing sex work, she's sleeping in an abandoned minivan. And you know, she was somebody I met 2 years before her death on Christmas Eve of 2017 when I first met her and I think about her so often because she said she told me how she had initially gotten prescribed uh Overprescribed prescribed opioids at an urgent care center. And then she proceeded to tell me how hard it was for her to get on Suboxone and stay on it because of waiting lists, because of cash-only practices, because her family didn't believe in it. I and mean, there were many, many reasons. But, but what she said to me, and I didn't really latch onto it, was what we need is urgent care for the addicted. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying now I realize, I mean, she didn't know what it was either because it didn't exist where she lived. There was one needle exchange on the outskirts of Las Vegas, but so far away from the tourists and the where the homeless live um, that you know you had to take two buses to get to it. So this idea of people and low barrier centers where people can be triaged and helped helped with, you know, housing and food. And I mean, you just see so many great things happening when when, uh, peer recovery specialists, for instance, start to reach out to people like Tess. But it it was too late for her. Um, She was murdered on Christmas Eve, 2017. And her mother and I, you know, tried like heck to find out what happened. The police investigated and the murder has never been solved. But um, I, I think about what she said to me and how we don't listen to the people who are mm-hmm. the most affected. And I, I didn't listen to her as well as I should have.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Beth, I I, I want to thank you. Um, I, You know, we've given, I think, a glimpse uh, to our listeners. You know, we haven't talked about you know heroes like Art Van Zandt or um, Sister uh, Beth, sister, sister Beth, or uh, John Brownlee or Rick Mountcastle, and and all the parents that have oh, become yeah. activists and supportive of other people. But I, I, I would urge our listeners to watch the series, read the book, so that we can become part of the solution. Because I think it's really easy to think this is somebody else's problem. But as you say, this is everywhere. This And this shows up as crime. It shows up as mental health issues. It shows up as poverty. It shows up as crime. I mean, it's just endless, the the tentacles of it. And I want to thank foster you. Foster care.
1: Oh, my gosh. Our foster oh, care yeah, system fo- is just through the roof.
0: So, I, I you know, without making it seem like it doesn't have a solution, I, I will mention that um, you've got a new book coming out in August calling Raising Lazarus. Uh, but until that comes out, I think you've given us plenty of material And as always, Beth, you tell us the story in a way that resonates because you bring it to real people and what they're experiencing. So uh, we've been talking with Beth Macy, uh, the author of Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company uh, that Addicted America. And, you know, thanks for getting us to pay attention, Beth. Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining us on Just the Right Book. Uh, Please tell all your friends about it. You can uh, find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio, produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selick, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.